Chapter 13 The Motor Pirate by George Sidney Paternoster. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hampton. Chapter 13 Of the Advantages of Being Wounded. I suppose I must have lost more blood than I had reckoned upon, or else the excitement of the pursuit had been sufficient to keep me going, but whichever it was, no sooner had we pulled up than I collapsed. I was never nearer fainting in my life. In fact, I had to take another stiff dose of whiskey, and even then I was only too glad to relinquish the steering wheel to Forrest and let him drive me the rest of the way home. He never left me until I was safely in bed, and the surgeon he had summoned had stitched me up. Fortunately, my wounds proved, as Forrest had foretold, more painful than dangerous. The bullet had carried with it some shreds of cloth, and the removal of these from my arm was the only really painful bit of work the surgeon had to perform. However, the medical man insisted on my remaining in bed, and I obeyed his orders for a couple of days. But on the third I felt so well that I rebelled against any further confinement and though still considerably sore, I managed to get out and about. I found I was a little bit shaky, yet I managed to get as far as Colonel Maitland's house, and there I found my adventure had been a blessing in disguise, for I could see from the manner in which she greeted me that my last encounter with the pirate had wiped from Miss Maitland's memory all remembrance of the previous occasion. There was only one thing to mar my enjoyment of the situation thus created— Mannering had unfortunately been successful in making himself a candidate for similar solicitude. His injury, however, was even more trivial than mine, the bullet having merely scored his shoulder. I wished devoutly it had missed him altogether, or been a few inches higher and more to the right, for in such case I would have had Miss Maitland's undivided sympathies and attention, whereas I had perforce to share them with my rival. I knew I had done nothing heroic, but if Mannering had not been hit, I might have at least posed as half a hero, instead of which I had to be content with being a quarter of one. However, I made the most of what glory I had earned, and I am bound to confess that I traded upon my sore arm in the most shameless fashion. Fortunately, the motor pirate at this time entered upon a long period of quiescence, so that I was free to make the most of my opportunity and to devote the whole of my time to Miss Maitland's society. The detective was firmly of the opinion that this prolonged rest was due to one of our shots having found its billet, and declared that we should hear nothing more of him until he had repaired damages. The inaction, however, soon became very wearisome to him, and when a fortnight had elapsed without a single appearance having been chronicled, he became quite morose. By that time he had searched over the whole district, but not a trace of any other injured person could he discover, and he was as much at a loss for a clue to the identity of the pirate as he had been when he first entered upon the job of running him to earth. The press by this time had nothing but jeers for the police and the detective force generally. Meantime, the most extraordinary steps were taken to secure the pirate's arrest when he should renew his career. The automobile club had officially lent their assistance to the police, and night by night, the principal roads of the county were patrolled by the members of the club, thirsting for the opportunity of distinguishing themselves by the capture of the marauder. The pirate must have been vastly amused in his retirement, as he read of the sensation he had created, 
I rather think that the man in the street looked upon the whole matter as the great sporting event of the century, and his sympathies were undoubtedly with the man who could so easily snap his fingers at the army of police, amateur and professional, who were engaged in the task of seeking him. In fact, if he had not committed the murder at Toaster, I am convinced that the public would have elevated him to the position of a great popular hero. Even as it was, he had no lack of apologists, and an eminent ballad monger celebrated his exploits in some verses, which were immensely applauded when recited by long-haired enthusiasts at smoking concerts and similar gatherings. All this was gall to Forrest, and at last one day, three weeks after our encounter with the pirate, he told me he could stand it no longer. I must try another line of country, he remarked. What line do you propose? I asked. The only thing I can think of, he replied, is to make inquiries in Amsterdam, to see if the diamonds which were taken from the mail have been offered for sale. I am quite certain that they have not been put upon the market this side of the water. I was very loth to let him go alone, but he would not hear of my accompanying him. What? Run away now and let your friend Mannering have a clear field? I wouldn't, if I were you, he remarked. Besides, I can manage this sort of work better by myself. His final argument was conclusive, and he went away promising to look me up immediately he returned, and expressing the hope that nothing more would be heard of the pirate until his return. On the very same day it happened that Mannering also took his departure from St. Stephen's. I had mentioned in his hearing that Forrest had been called away, and he had then informed us, Miss Maitland and myself, that he had some business in Paris in connection with the patent tire with which he was still experimenting, which would entail his absence for two or three days. I sincerely trusted that his business would require a much longer period to transact, and as he was leaving by an early train the next morning, I took particular care he should obtain no opportunity for a private leave-taking with Miss Maitland. It was not a sporting thing to do, perhaps, but I was so much in earnest about my love-making that I had no scruples about spoiling as many of my rival's chances as I could. However, as it happened, I found somewhat to my surprise that my tactics were not unwelcome to Miss Maitland. She confessed as much to me the next day. She, but perhaps it will be better for me to give in some detail the conversation we had upon this occasion, since it had a considerable bearing upon after events. The morning after Mannering had departed was as brilliant a one as June ever bestowed upon mortal. Now that my rival was out of the way, I thought I might dispense with the sling which I had worn hitherto, and directly after breakfast I strolled across to the Maitlands with the intention of persuading Miss Maitland to come for a ride on the Mercedes. I found her on the point of starting out for a stroll, with the object of giving her favorite Irish setter a run, and I was easily persuaded to abandon my projected ride and accompany her instead. We chose the footpath between St. Stephen's Church and the village of Park Street, and, stepping out briskly, we soon reached our destination, and as my companion would not hear of turning back, we continued our walk to Brickett Wood. There I insisted upon resting. I had never seen her in higher spirits than she was that morning. She bubbled over with gaiety, so much so that I could not help commenting upon the fact. Yes, she replied frankly, in answer to my remarks on the subject. I do feel gay this morning. I feel as if a load had been removed from my shoulders. Surely you could have no troubles, I remarked, half-banteringly. A shadow alighted for a moment upon her face and was gone again. Nothing which ought to be a trouble, nothing tangible and yet, oh, Mr. Sutgrove, do you 
Have you ever experienced a presentiment of something dreadful happening? No, that is not exactly what I mean. I don't know how to explain myself without... Then she paused, and I discreetly kept silence. Presently she resumed. Men are so stupid, or I would tell you all about it. You would never understand. I saw my opening and made use of it. We men may be stupid both individually and collectively, I said, but I can answer for one man being sympathetic to anything you like to say to him. She laughed. I am so afraid you will think me silly. Miss Maitland, Evie, I began. Hush, she stopped me with an adorable smile. You know you haven't caught the motor pirate yet. I summoned up the most injured expression permitted by my contentment with my surroundings and fell silent again. Poor boy, she said mockingly. It is unkind of me to remind you of your vow when you've already done your best to fulfill it. Not quite my best yet, I muttered sullenly. Anyhow, I think you have done quite enough to warrant my taking you into my confidence. She said this quite seriously, and glancing up at her, I saw she was looking into a glade of the wood with a preoccupied expression on her pretty face, which showed me that it was in reality no petty trouble which worried her. This scene is so delightfully restful. I love the cool green lights and the cool gray shadows of the woodlands in early summer, she remarked absently. I had no eyes for aught but the face of the speaker, though I was indirectly conscious that there was a good deal of beauty in the wood. To me, it seemed an appropriate background, that was all. Yes, I said, but about this presentiment of yours. It is hardly a presentiment. In fact, I don't know what to call it, she replied. Then she turned and faced me. Now listen, there's an acquaintance of mine, whom I know very well and used to like a great deal. Yes, I think I am right in saying used to like. Well, for some undefined reason, my liking has changed to something very like fear. For what reason? I asked. None, she replied. Absolutely there is no reason whatever. A case of Dr. Fell, I said. Well, avoid your Dr. Fell. That is exactly what I am unable to do, she answered, and I could see she was speaking truly. This fear has grown up in some degree, I think, from a subtle sort of consciousness that the person in question has it in his power to exert a curious influence over me. I seem to be drawn against my will into an attitude towards him, which is not only against my judgment, but also against my inclination. Him? I asked. Him? Is it mannering? Why, what made you think of him? Does he affect you in the same way? She said eagerly. Far from it, I replied. My first feeling was one of delight at discovering that my rival was more feared than loved. But as I thought over the matter, my astonishment grew. I looked upon Mannering as a rival, and as a favored rival, but I was not prepared to hear that Evie Maitland was afraid of him, or of any other man for the matter of that, and I said so. A month ago I should have laughed at the idea myself, she replied. But today, she shuddered slightly, now you know why I feel so gay this morning. The fact is, when on awakening this morning I realized that I should be absolutely free from his presence for two whole days, I hardly knew how to contain myself for joy. Surely you must have some grounds for fearing him, something in his manner. No, yet I have thought, but it is nothing. When we have been alone together, he has sat once or twice staring at me. I try to speak to him, but he sits and stares and stares, with his eyes so bright and all the time so somber, so penetrating that I feel he sees quite through me, just like one does in those unpleasant dreams where one's clothes have somehow disappeared. 
Today, and now, it seems very silly. Yet I am certain I shall feel exactly the same the next time I meet him. Then, when he sees how confused I am, he gives a sort of a laugh, an unpleasant kind of a chuckle, without any merriment in it. He's a damned cad, I cried hotly. I... I don't know, she answered. I don't seem to mind at the time. It is just as if I were in a dream, for I am so fascinated in watching him that I have no thoughts left for myself. It is when he is gone that the thought seems unpleasant. Then I always think I will never see him again, but the next time he calls I feel bound to do so. There, now I have confided in you. Don't tell me I am a weak hysterical girl, or I really don't know what will happen to me. She laid one of her little hands on my arm and looked imploringly into my eyes. I know that you are neither weak nor hysterical, I replied. You will help me, won't you? she asked. I took both hands in mine and looked straight into her eyes. The only way I can see of helping you, I said deliberately, is for you to give me the right to do so. She did not take her hands from my grasp. Do you know, Jim, she said an hour later when we came out of the wood into the meadow, then I told you not to speak to me until you had captured the motor pirate. You could not answer for me, darling, I replied, but I should not have done so if I had not found the temptation to do so irresistible, she said, taking the words out of my mouth with so bewitching an air that again I found an irresistible temptation confronting me. We did not revert again to the curious influence which Evie had declared Mannering exercised. She would not allow of it. She wanted to think that he had gone completely out of her life and that no more shadows were ever to fall across her path, and I was too happy myself to wish to refer to anything which should bring an unpleasant memory to her mind. I shall never forget our walk home. The silver thread of the Vare, the old monastery gatehouse and the ruins of Sopwell Priory in the foreground, the churches of St. Stephen's and St. Michael's on either hand, and in the center of the picture the Abbey of St. Albans brooding over all, we decided to be married in the Abbey, I trod on air. End of chapter 13 The Motor Pirate Recording by Paul Hampton